So building on our conversations we've been having around well-being with guests like Richard Saphir and Carrie Collin and Jeff McDonald and Neil Greenberg and others, um, what's been building up for me and clarifying for me is a picture that leaders really need to recast their thinking about well-being. And we've talked about this before, but it's just so important. Not, not well-being as a cost they need to offset, but a core part of what an organization should actually be about. Yeah, I agree. I think it, it comes down to this deal um, that we have, you know, the value exchange. You know, in the past, the old deal was, you know, you did a good job, we'll reward you well, you get security, we get loyalty and so on. And that's clearly not working, but organizations still rely tacitly on that value exchange. Um, and it's it's just not the, the story that's there in, in, in people's minds. Mm-hmm. So for you, what do you think the new deal looks like? Well, I'm not entirely sure, but I think what these guests are all trying to figure out in their own way is, is what that looks like, because work now demands more from us than it did in the past. More time, more energy, more commitment, more of ourselves. So what we need is a new set of value exchanges. So pull that apart, and, and I'd love to hear your thoughts on that. Well, I think they, I think so. Yeah, I mean, I think organisations need to recognise that if they don't move past the the kind of transactional approach to well-being, to giving people things to support well-being, and then taking them away when times get tough, like their benefits. That's the big message they're sending them out. This is a this is a kind of benefit in kind. They're going to suffer more quitting, more low engagement, more stressed out teams because the demands are just getting more intense. So it really, we, we need a new way of thinking about this. Yeah, and I've said this before, and well, we both have, but instead, um, what leaders need to do is see that meeting their people's needs is essential to performing sustainably. It needs to be, it needs to become a source of competitive advantage, not, not seen as a cost. Yeah, because work's now so all-encompassing in our lives, we can't just rely on home and social life to take care of renewal, for example, because we're working there too. I mean, how many people do you see checking their email on the beach by the pool? It's everyone. Um, you know, they might be pretending that they're, they're not, but they're all doing it. Um, so in this show, uh, we're talking to the researcher, Rob Cross, who we've spoken with before on the topic of collaboration overload. And that was a great episode and here we're talking about his new research on the cumulative effects of micro stress yeah and what he's drawing our attention to is the fine detail of what influences our well-being things that we might otherwise lose sight of in the noise of the bigger pieces of this puzzle everything and anything we can bring to help our listeners solve the well-being crisis is valuable to us so let's get going let's do it Hi friends, welcome to the Evolving Leader Podcast, the show born from the belief that we need deeper, more accountable, and more human leadership to confront the world's biggest challenges. I'm Scott Allender. And I'm John Gomes. How are you feeling today, Mr. Gomes? I am feeling uh, pretty good. I had a lovely weekend. It was my wife's birthday, so I'm feeling buoyed up from that experience, and I am feeling very excited 
about reconnecting with our guest today because uh, yeah we we have talked before. How are you feeling, Scott? I'm feeling a real mix of things today. had a had a lovely uh, excursion with my family uh, for for part of the kids' fall break, so we had a nice little getaway. But I'm feeling pretty heavy and sad about a lot of the state of the world and what's happening all around us. Um, Today we're joined once again by an evolving leader favorite, Mr. Rob Cross. Rob is a senior vice president of research for I4CP and the Edward A. Madden Professor of Global Leadership at Babson College in Wellesley, Massachusetts. Rob joined us on season four of The Evolving Leader to talk to us about his book, Beyond Collaboration Overload, which we got a lot of positive feedback from our listeners. And since then, he's written a new book this year, called Microstress, which again has received much critical acclaim, striking a resonant chord with people everywhere. Rob, it's great to have you back. Welcome to The Evolving Leader. All right. Thank you so much. Rob, welcome back. How have you been since we last talked last spring, and how are you feeling today? Doing well overall, and uh, as I, the listeners may hear, I have a slight cold because this weekend was uh, a pretty busy one. Actually, has a lot of relevance to what we're going to talk about. I had a grad school uh, classmate pass away very suddenly, um, and it, it turned into this catalytic moment for probably forty of us that all came back together. I ended up having a, a lot of house guests and a bunch of people over at my house. So the past three days have been a blur of reconnecting with people that I haven't uh, had a lot of time with for the past 25 years, but was super close to uh, early uh, in my life. So very positive, but very little sleep. <laughs> and so I think somehow it, it led into a cold. But uh, as we go, the listeners will hopefully get a sense of um, uh, why that matters a little bit later on uh, in the show here. <laughs> well, we're sorry for your loss, Rob. Um, so let's remind our listeners a bit more about you. Uh, imagine we're at a dinner party and I'm in a completely unrelated field. I do construction or something of that nature. Uh, how would you introduce yourself and your work to someone who has none of the reference points that we normally assume people might have on a, on a show like ours? So I'm talking to my mom, you're saying. Yeah, your mom. Your, mom. your mom's asking, what is it you do? Exactly. I don't know, mom. <laughs> so I, uh, we have, over the years, developed a, you know, an analytic way of looking at collaboration and relationships, right? And understanding kind of uh, who's interacting with whom and what they're actually receiving from each other, the quality of the exchanges uh, in different ways. And so for the, the most uh, recent two books, the one we spoke about before and the one we'll speak about today, what I was really doing was looking at what What's the effect of the connections in our lives, both professional and personal? Uh, first, uh, very heavily focused on performance, and that was the book we talked about last time. And then this was a book that really came about as a product of the consortia pushing me to say, well, what we care about is not just performance, but people that are sustainable and really thriving uh, in their lives. And so this one really came down on the focus of what's the role of relationships in our well-being or happiness um, today. And uh, it's really crazy when you start digging into this. You know, I uh, started really doing it at 600 interviews, right? In-depth interviews with people on this and the way in which the people in our, both our professional and our personal lives affect our uh, well-being. But then I also started researching the other uh, bodies of work out there. And it is really um, amazing to me, you know, if you fall into this 
category of being clinically lonely, as an example, which means you just don't have people to talk to about important things, you know, in your life. Turns out about a third of the population is in there, that space. Uh, the mortality rate is the same as, as smoking 15 cigarettes a day, you know, greater likelihood of uh, 26% greater likelihood of dying early. I mean, a, a depression, dementia, I mean, all these risk factors shoot up. And, and what's stunning to me is we don't pay attention to it. We don't think intentionally about how are we building and cultivating these connections. Uh, we just let it happen, you know, in more serendipitous ways. Whereas, you know, we'll chase blood pressure medicines down to the ends of the earth or cholesterol medications or things like that and ignore, you know, something that has this, this same effect. So, so that's really what I think we'll focus mainly on today is that body of work. And the, the idea uh, got titled the micro stress effect because the publishers always want a term that'll go viral if they're lucky. Um, but the real focus was on how do the connections in our lives today affect both positively and negatively um, our, our sense of kind of happiness and, and well-being. Can we come back to a statistic you said? Did you say that loneliness has just as much detrimental effect towards mortality as cigarettes? As smoking 15 cigarettes a day, the rate of mortality, the mortality rate is the equivalent of smoking 15 cigarettes a day if you fall into this category of being clinically lonely. And, you know, what's fascinating about it is my work shows that being overwhelmed, obviously, with collaboration is a problem. And in, in some senses, because it's taking us away from the quality of connections, you know, that we need in our lives and uh, in different ways. And, um, and it actually turns out that our most connected generation, right, the Gen Z, you know, group, they're connected in a way that nobody ever has been before, but they actually are the loneliest um, generation too. It's actually not the elderly you know, populations and things out there. So it, it in many ways boils down to the quality of the connections we have in our lives, both professionally and personally. And those have definitely drifted, you know, not just through the pandemic, but what we see is this started happening about 12 years ago you know, and, and uh, affecting people's lives. The pandemic just kind of accelerated it very quickly because of social distancing and the degree to which that pulled us out of groups that were kind of keeping us whole in, in different ways. That's, um, that's frightening in terms of the problem that's storing up uh, for future generations. Um, can, can you give us a sense of the reasons behind that um, disconnection that that generation's experiencing? Yeah, I, well, I mean, one is the, just the sheer frenzy, you know, that we're, we're in right now. And mostly what I studied. So I'm going to, you know, admittedly be the boy with a hammer because I'm looking at the relationships and, and collaborations that are happening. What I'm seeing is it's less the amount of work that's shooting up and it's more the collaborative footprint around the work that has started to, to consume people's times in ways that's invisible based on the conventional metrics we tend to uh, look at. And so just, you know, one simple example that most people resonate with is pre-pandemic people would complain about, you know, having meetings all the time. And what they meant by that, you know, say okay, meetings all day long and I can't get anything done until I go home. Um, and what they usually meant by that is they had eight one-hour meetings, you know, in their day. And then somebody through the pandemic came up with the idea that let's go to 30 or 25-minute meetings and, and what has evolved now is we have 16, 30 minute meetings for a lot of places, right? And, and it's a real frenzy, right? You know, you're more intense in those meetings. You're switching across them more rapidly. You end the day with uh, to-do list based on 16, not eight meetings. Um, and that, you know, ratchets up the work, right? We're working five to eight hours more a week, you know, earlier into the morning, deeper into the night. And it's created less space for people to connect as humans, 
Um, and what I can see with my happier people, I know we want to talk about the micro stress ideas, but the second half of the book was really on the happiest people uh, in our research. And what we could see is they tended to almost universally have authentic connections uh, with at least two and usually three groups outside of their profession. Right. And it was the dimensionality that those groups created that enabled them to see the stress differently, right? And to not get absorbed in the minutiae uh, quite as much. And so when I'm referencing this funeral that I had this weekend, I was less focused on the funeral and more on the degree to which it was a catalytic event that brought relationships, you know, very deep relationships back into, uh, to life in a pretty, pretty cool way that I think we all have a lot more latitude to do that when we think to reach back to connections from the past and, and, uh, and slingshot forward. So we'll come back to relationships in a moment, but I'd love to start with the book and, and, uh, because it has, um, gotten a lot of, uh, interest, um, so let's start with the difference between stress and micro stress. Yeah. <laughs> so stress for us, we tend to think of it as the big events that, you know, kind of they invoke the fight or flight response. They get the cortisol jilt kind of evolutionary wise, what we're conditioned to do and move into kind of fight or flight, you know, mode. It's things that our bodies kind of uh, recognize. For us, that was not what we were hearing was killing people. You know, you do 600 interviews and you're focused very specifically, not just on the positive aspects of connections, but the ways that relationships and collaborations create stress or create anxiety or other things like that. And it wasn't the big things in general. You know, there, there may be health scares. There may be problems with your child or your parents or whatever. But what was drowning people were these small moments, you know. And so this might take the form of uh, you are on a call and you sense misalignment with a colleague, you know, and you're wondering, how am I going to solve that? And that goes into the back of your brain. It's not fight or flight. You're not panicked about it. But you're like, where am I going to get the time? This is important before the train gets down the tracks too far. And maybe in the next call, you know, you see a teammate that needs to be coached for the third time and you're kind of back of your mind again. How am I going to do that and keep their engagement along with a misaligned colleague? And maybe 10 minutes later, you get a text from a child, right? And you can't tell if they're just grumbling about something or if it's a big deal. And usually they're done with it in two minutes. You worry about it for three hours, right? Not fight or flight, but in the back of your mind. And the problem is we're getting hit with 20, 25, 30 of these a day, if not more. And uh, our minds don't really register it, right? In fact, most people are successful. They just say, oh, this is something to get over, right? It's just another thing right, that you kind of work through. But um, our bodies are registering it. Our bodies actually absorb this in the same way as kind of the big stress. And so it, you know, it hits us from a blood pressure standpoint, a heart rate standpoint. Uh, most of us have this feeling, you know, we hit the end of the day, our heads hit the pillow, and we're exhausted, but we can't quite say what just happened. You know, we can't quite put a finger on, on what did it. Uh, and a lot of it is this kind of accumulation of these small moments coming to us, not just from people we don't like or frustrated with. You know, these things actually come at us more impactfully from people we love, right? Our children, our parents, our siblings, whatever it may be, um, that, that have a, a draining impact on us. Um, one of the Studies we found were actually showing metabolically even that um, if you, the person at Northeastern set up this controlled experiment, gave people the same caloric meal, right? Same 
calories meal. Uh, but in one instance, they were under this form of social stress that I'm describing, right? These constant barrages within two hours of eating the meal. In the other, they weren't. The people that were under the stress, their bodies added 104 calories to that meal, right? Just in terms of how they processed it. So it doesn't sound like a big deal, but you extrapolate that out. And in her study, it was 11 pounds a year. That's just a product of, you know, the stress. So it has a, um, even though our minds don't kind of hit in that fight or flight response, it's the accumulation, right? That we allow to happen around us because we just think, oh, you just get through this, right? That is, uh, is having the big effect. Yeah. I, I told Scott I was uh, adhering to my diet. Now this explains it. <laughs> yeah, what's happening? Yeah. It's not the Twinkies. No. Yeah. <laughs> so beyond the, the, this is so interesting because beyond the hundred calories, um, why is it so important that we become more aware of micro stressors? Cause I could, I could imagine somebody listening saying I'm resilient. I'm tough. If it's not triggering my fight or flight response, I'm not going to worry about it. It's just life deal with it. You could be really easily dismissive of it, but, but it's important to, to pull out why it's so important that we become aware of it. For me, it's a handful of things. So one is you go through 600 interviews in something like this and you're 90 minutes in and everybody has that first reaction, right? In the top end of these interviews, everybody, you know, the first 10 minutes, life is rainbows and lollipops. Like I'm, my kids are in the right place and here and here. And then you start digging in to kind of how they feel like they're doing professionally, you know, and then how they're showing up as a parent, a provider, um, all the stresses that society puts on us, you know, at that level too. And, you know, you get into minute 30, minute 45, the cracks come in, minute 75, you know, many people actually, some were choking up by the end of it, just with the, you know, the amount that's kind of hitting them and they hadn't thought about the web that they were in. And what I always really didn't like with those people were describing stories of kind of five, eight years that they were just chugging along, just getting through life, you know, and, 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 and it just happened as a product, not of a big thing that went wrong, but this slow accumulation of, of the small that they get trapped in. Um, what I can see, what's interesting to me, let me say it this way, is that my 10 percenters, the people that there were about 90% of the population I studied that went that trajectory, they started, positive life is rainbows and lollipops and then went negative about 10 percent never did it you know they would just stay positive so they were crushing performance and yet they were living in ways that dealt with these micro stressors differently they engaged with others in ways that created energy and purpose and the stories were entirely different you know the stories i hated hearing were highly successful people who made bazillions of dollars but they'd also you know had no relationship with their children three divorces and irreparable health right at that point and, um, and so it got to be a, you know, pretty big deal for me. For your listeners, one, you know, quick stat is we know that a negative interaction in our lives has uh, three to five times the impact of a positive, right? And so if what we're doing to kind of be happier or maintain our well-being is just meditation, mindfulness, yoga, all those things are really important, but they're just helping you persist basically in the system that you've allowed to kind of create around you in different ways. Um, and so what we know is that if you adapt the negative, right, and actually shift that, that is the higher leverage stuff than reaching for a positive, right? It actually has a bigger impact uh, on you and it can come in really subtle forms. Um, and, you know, my daughter was a high level tennis player and I chased her around the country, you know, trying to support her in different ways and her sport and what she was doing and what we had fallen into 
because it was always just us at these tournaments. It's just this pattern of whenever anything went wrong, she'd, she'd, you know, be baldy. This is going on baldy, this baldy, that for those of you guys that can't see, I'm hair, hair challenged here. And her nickname for me is baldy. And, and the, you know, it made sense in those contexts, right? Because I was the one there supporting her, but she's going into med school and I'm still getting these texts. <laughs> baldy this, baldy that. And, uh, one, one night over a glass of wine up in Cambridge, I, we came to, we're laughing about it, about how her stress cascades to me. And she said, you know, dad, I don't even think about that stuff when I send it. It's just a knee jerk reaction. And I'm like, well, squirt. I, I worry about it for three or four hours. <laughs> you know? And so if it doesn't matter to you, don't send it to me. And when it does matter, send it right. And I'll be on it immediately. Um, but that as silly as that sounds, that focus, not on the relationship, but on what are the interactions in the relationship that are causing problems and adapting that. Um, it's had an impactful, you know, impact on my life, right? And just not getting hit with that and worrying about it. And it's actually solidified the relationship even more, right? I'm not getting these things going, oh my gosh, you know, another thing. When I do get them, I know it's important and we're on it like that. You know what I mean? And so I think a, a tendency a lot of times with the stressors is too often people start to distance from the relationship rather than saying, what's the interaction that I address in here? I think that's a problem with a lot of the counseling stuff today is they say, put up boundaries. And and that's great. It may block some things, but we actually desperately need these connections too in our lives. And a lot of the, just the blank put up boundaries um, is, is starting to shift people away from that if we're not, if we're not careful in it. I guess when we're overwhelmed, it's easy to try and find symptomatic solutions because they don't ask very much of us. And what you're talking about here is something that gets to a first principle about what's happening in a relationship and, and trying to affect it at that level. Is that kind of what you're seeing with this 10% about how they're managing to cope with micro stress differently from anyone else? Or is there something else going on? I, I think they're more um, intentional about it and just more thought. I mean, if you think about it, the reality is we all holistically have more ability to shape what we do and who we do it with than any generation in the past. And yet we fall into everybody else's expectations, you know, and what I would find is at the heart of it, my 10 percenters, they were just a little bit more intentional and being clear on kind of, you know, what and how work played a role in their lives, what other things were critical. Um, and they architected that in, and then they were very clear on shifting the negative patterns, you know, in their lives versus letting them uh, persist. We've been doing, you know, in the book, we talk about the 14 micro stressors and we have people go through a table that says, um, you know, what are two or three that you're experiencing that are systemic enough that you should do something about? Uh, what are two or three that you're causing others? Because what we know is the stress we unnecessarily create inevitably boomerangs back on us in a different form, right? We push a child too hard or whatever, and that shows up in the form of belligerence or an employee too hard, and they start to disengage and we're absorbing more work. Uh, and then what are two or three you should rise above? So we can be very tactical, right? And using something like that to say, okay, it's actually not a sea of stress we're in. And we actually can get down and do some very targeted things that, again, because of that leverage, you know, three to five times the impact of adding a positive, it has a, a quantifiable impact. What I learned in this as not just from the book, but as we've been doing a bunch of action, you know, learning experiments is for many, many, many people, it is easier to just absorb the stress than to deal with it in the moment right? Psychically, it's just easier to just say, okay, I'm going to take it. But it layers on just like weight, right? It doesn't go away, right? These things keep coming back in different 
uh, different patterns. I find if I can get people, we have these six week sprints that we've been doing as experiments and I won't bore you with the specifics of it, but week one, everybody's terrified, right? I can't do this thing. And then they go do it and the world doesn't tilt on its axis and everything's great. They show up week two. They're still like, I can't do this thing, you know, but what's interesting is by week four, many of them have changed and they're saying, you know what, here's the impact of being more proactive on it. They're seeing it. They're more willing to kind of just shape the interactions around them. And so that's kind of my hope from this, you know, is that people start to leverage the ideas that way and see that we can, in fact, be a lot more intentional than sometimes we, we give ourselves uh, latitude for. You've provided a, an amazing resource in the, um, in, in the MicroStress app which anybody can go on download and it's really great um, in terms of providing an analysis of what your micro stresses might be and strategies for, you know, you give away an awful lot in this. Um, what, what are you using that for at your end? Are you collating that stuff to, to aid your research? Yeah, we definitely are doing that. So if you go into it, you, you, which you will, you will know, you filled out some things that help us start to see, do men and women struggle with this differently? You know, uh, populations of, um, minority populations, right? Or, or people that are higher in the hierarchy. So we've just actually finished a piece looking at that. We've had a tremendous number of people, you know, come through and uh, use the app that way. And you find, for example, that women across 13 of the 14 micro stresses, they absorb them or experience them at a greater rate than men um, out there. We find conventional markers of success, like height, height in the hierarchy, education level. All of those are associated with greater experience of micro stress. Um, out there, you know, so conventional markers of success actually, you know, make you or put you in a position to where many people are more susceptible to this professionally and, uh, and personally, but, but that app for, for your listeners, that's what, uh, you could do this with your team, right? What I was just describing, what we have people do is go out to the app, pull down one micro stress they're going to work on during a week. You know, they, uh, commit to it, to the group, right? And then on fr the Monday morning and then on Friday, they write to the group, here's what I did. Right. And that's what I meant about people that were panicking Monday morning. I don't know if I can do this big hairy thing. And then finding out they actually did it Friday and, and nothing shifted. But you um, just organize your group and, and kind of work through something like that over six weeks or maybe make it 12 and do every other week. It's really amazing how um, people's not just that they're seeing this stuff, but that their posture to it is shifting. They start to see I can control this more than I thought I could in the moment, which to me is a a really big deal and why we do give away as much as we do with the app, you know, just to kind of get it into people's hands and used. That's really interesting about the difference between men and women. Did you find any causation correlation? What, what, what's the root cause of the differences? I think it's, this is where I got to be careful, right? Is the middle-aged, you know, balding male <laughs> in what I say. So I'll, um, I think it's, it's driven in part we can see from my book around collaboration overload that um, all the statistics through that is women have a greater tendency to get in trouble around collaboration overload from a desire to help. You know, it's they're, they're driven differently. And I mean that statistically. We see it over and over and over again as there is a, whether that's societally bred, you know what I mean, based on role expectations or it's something innate. Um, I think there is uh, things that are driven that way. And then I think there are things that are driven externally, you know, that, that in general, you know, an easy example is women absorb, especially if they're in careers, they're absorbing typically more of the childcare, um, you know, roles than, than men. Um, 
for whatever reason. I don't think it's certainly something that people should be looking at and saying men are bad and women are good. I think it's just expectations, right? That, that kind of people put on each other, um, in the, in how they're, how they're managing things. So I think it's a combination, you know, of, of things like that. What I do find though, also interesting is women are much better at building these kinds of networks that persist and actually help them cope with the stress differently. You know, men tend to, uh, isolate everything into, you know, one or maybe two people. Women have a richer set of connections in their lives that help them process things, get a sense of purpose, resilience, uh, that way. And so there's, again, not, not good or bad. They're just kind of strengths and weaknesses to, to either approach. So how are you seeing, you mentioned a few moments ago, the implication around engagement with prolonged exposure to micro stresses. What else are you seeing? How are you seeing this issue play out in the workplace? Well, I mean, I think it's one of the biggest drivers of burnout personally. Now, again, and, and we're, you know, we can see it statistically. And, and this is, again, where I'm the boy with a hammer and I'm saying we're looking at the, the effect of all these interactions we're in, right? That's my lens into the world is to try and make that visible and bring it up. Uh, a lot of people, when they do that table in the book that I just mentioned about the, what are you experiencing? What are you causing? What do you need to rise above? Um, we don't have a column for for yourself in there, right? Even though we know that for many people, are, we're our own worst enemy in terms of putting stress on ourselves. So my lens is very much, you know, focused on the the relationships just because it hasn't been really thought of as much as sure volume of work or other things like that. But what we can certainly see is it's driving burnout. It's driving attrition uh, in different ways. It used to be that just not getting connected enough in these networks was the biggest predictor of uh, voluntary departure. Now we're finding it's bimodal, right? It's the people that can't break in. It's the people that are overwhelmed in different ways that choose to kind of back out. Um, and I believe, and part of the reason I'm running these experiments that I mentioned about how do you not just communicate these ideas, but get them to be a habit for people, to be looking for them, to be shaping their lives. Um, you know, I believe if, if we're right on this, that, you know, culturally you can identify how and where is stress propagated, right? Using my broader tools and then be more precise, right? On what people do about it. And if we're right, I really think we'd see fewer people going into clinical categories of care, you know, what, uh, and, and that could be enormously impactful, right? On a, on a moral front, as well as an economic front, uh, in different ways. We had a last year in the, in the United States, I won't get the statistic right in here, but it was something like a 25% increase in college students seeking counseling for the first time. So 25% in one year. And I guarantee you as a professor, the workload has not gone up through COVID. It's gone down, right? It's, it's the, the relational things we're talking about. People, the kids especially experiencing stress from social media and social comparison, the lack of quality connections at that, at that age. Um, and so it, it has, you know, significant costs in, in different ways that we're seeing. In um, Collaboration Overload, I think what you did there was you, um, you pointed out something that was very true about um, how people's lives have run fundamentally changed, and particularly the, um, the, the highest performers that become, you know, the organization becomes depend upon to, to drive collaboration across the organization. And I think you've done the same thing here again, which is you've nailed something that is probably implicit, but we're not really aware of. You're shining a light on something that is kind of um, invisible to many, many people. 
Um, as you think about what you're doing here, how, how is that going to change the, the way in which we think about how organizations need to look after people differently or, or, or trying to align their capabilities with the demands facing them? How do you see this playing out in a bigger picture? I mean, my hope is if we can continue to build the momentum, you do a book like Microstress Effect and you're doing hundreds of interviews, right, to, to understand the issue. And those interviews, you know, are a great strategy, very time consuming, right, to get something like that done. But it's what lets you get to that experience that you're describing where people go, oh, my gosh, I got this going on right in my life. It, it is, you know, what's happening. Um, and my hope is that we're able to develop the right approaches to inject this into organizations. I believe it's in the teams, right? I don't think this is a well-being initiative. You know what I mean? I don't think it's um, something like that that just becomes put on a website and people do it or don't. I think if we're really lucky, I'll be able to get the right examples over the next five years and say, look, these companies that take this seriously, their rates of innovation, their rates of performance are significantly higher you know, maybe we're able to show how an impact of raising the top, uh, the bottom quartile of team performance to mid quartile as a product of people feeling whole and healthy and, and engaged in work. I mean, when we look at this, it's not that we're just, this is not like a kumbaya moment, right? It's, it's saying these teams need to execute on the things they have to get done, but simultaneously they need to be fueling people, right, today more so than, than in the past. And we can already see in some of the analytics we've run that the, the performance delta was huge. The groups that do both those things well, right, in terms of revenue production, one of the major consulting firms was huge. So what I would like to see is that we're able to produce those cases, right, revenue, innovation rates, keeping people out of clinical categories of care, attrition reduction, things like that, that gets people's attention. And then I think what it really is and the way we're designing these interventions is it's not just that you deliver the content. You know, that app is very cool with the videos and the cards that spin and everything else, but it really needs to spur a set of conversations. So the architecture of these things are, you know, in many cases we're seeing somebody gets a nudge on the micro stress and then their leader gets that nudge too. And it starts a conversation there. And then there's a tool that goes into the team and then these people laterally are talking. And I think that's what's going to create more, you know, enduring change if, if, if we're lucky <laughs> uh, over the course of the next next couple of years. Now, the, what will keep it from happening is everybody just say, I'm too busy, right? <laughs> I don't have time for this and, and you know, kind of continue to spin in, in different ways. But, but that's my hope is that it just becomes kind of part of how people are working and thinking about, you know, not just execution, but the quality of the experience in the, in the teams themselves. I love the term that you and your co-author use, uh, secondhand stress. Um, maybe because I grew up in secondhand smoke. I don't know. I just like the term, but uh, it really resonated uh, with me. And I'd love to you, for you to unpack what is what is secondhand stress. Yeah. So it is. You know, because of how interconnected we are, <coughs> we oftentimes experience a stress, but then it traffics you know into other points right in our in our networks or lives and so just some simple examples one of the the micro stresses is uh sudden and unexpected shifts in expectations right leaders that are constantly changing the, it typically takes the form of the what of the work uh, the performance expectations or timeline or uh, just emotionally they show up differently from point a to point b and you can't you can't get it everybody's had that experience and they're like yeah that stinks right but what they forget is it starts to cascade another layer 
of things, right? Where you've got to go protect your team, get them reengaged in a different direction. Or maybe on the first direction, you've gone out and, and solidified help with four or five other colleagues. And then with the shift, you don't need their help, but you're stuck delivering for them and you got to go find new colleagues, you know, to help in the new direction. So those are all secondary stresses, right? Or another real common one is people will, you know, have, have some experience slight at work, right? And they go home and they complain to their significant other. Now, the significant other knows no other side of the story than your own. So all they do is say, oh my gosh, you've been wronged. You know, we should do something about it. Then they further stress somebody out, right? Because they're replaying it, not with an eye to, gosh, here's what you could have done, or here's maybe the perspective in the situation. It's just empathy purely um, that, that kind of spins it up. Or even the story I was just describing with Rachel, right? She, she would experience stress and her valve, my daughter, Rachel, her valve was just to send it to me, right? And there was a hugely asymmetric effect of that, right? Without really, you know, reflecting on it. Um, so those are a couple uh, of examples, and I could go on with more. And I'm sure everybody on this show has had scenarios where one email cascades into you know a, a massive <laughs> tsunami of things that people are trying to understand, or uh, other elements like that. That's probably the biggest example we use in the book is cascading that way. I'm thinking through. You know, you're, you've been talking about loneliness and the need for connection and. The idea that boundaries can get overplayed to, at the sacrifice of deep, meaningful connection. We're also talking now about secondhand stress, which is if we're not careful, we can go to the most important relationships in our lives and cause stress and perpetuate stress for both parties because, they, like you said, they only have one side of the story. So you have a great you, you give a great story about you and your daughter of how you worked through that. But I'm thinking about, you know, couples at home that come home at, at, at the end of a long day and they're bringing their stresses home, I'm thinking about friendships. How do people do this all really well? How do people connect on a deep, deeply personal level and avoid the pitfalls of secondhand stress? So I think, I mean, to me, every one of these is different, right? And that's the architecture of the book. Like, it's a different thing if what's driving me crazy is... Um, uh, conflictual conversations, right? Versus uh, shifts in identity. You know what I mean? Those are very different things. So each of these, um, they feel like small moments. And by shifts in identity for your listeners, what we find a lot of times is when people leave one job and go to work for another, they get promoted in different ways. We forget the degree to which the interactions we have in our lives, once they're taken away, formed a piece of our identity, right? Uh, the, the degree to which we were a musician or a, a spiritual person or a health conscious person, whatever it was, as we get pulled out of those groups kind of uh, dissipates in different ways. So those are very different things, right? To, to think about how do I, you know, kind of um, ab absolve that. I think for me, if I kind of broadly say, you know, what I think matters, Scott, to your question is um, the, the happier people in my work, they tended to maintain dimensionality in their lives. And so they tended to have at least two and usually three groups outside of their profession and direct family that kept them anchored and, and as broader people. And they just saw the world differently when they did that. Well, they didn't get down into the minutiae. The stories that I heard that ended poorly were people where it just became purely about their role as provider. And that never stopped, right? It was always a moving target about this next home we need in the next community, children in the next school. It was never like materialism in the sense that I need a 
Italian watch or whatever. I don't know if there are Italian watches, but whatever it is, like they don't need the thing, but it was that role of provider that was very materialism driven, right? Social comparison driven. Um, those were not good stories. In contrast, the ones I heard where people maintain dimensionality, you know, in their lives, they just tend to keep things in a very different perspective. And I think that translates into home and relationships, the degree to which you you know, kind of come in. And so I'll give you one example from the book. It was a very successful uh, Silicon Valley executive. She ran um, the, the uh, venture fund and the strategy office for the very well-known software organization. And I was interviewing her and she um, uh, had been a runner all her life. I think she came out of Stanford. She's probably mid forties when I was speaking with her. And when I sat down to talk to her, she said, you know, Rob, um, because I would focus on, you know, tell me about times that, that connections in your life had a positive effect on physical health, growth, purpose, and resilience. And she said, Rob, you know, I let society tell me what running was good for, for the first 20 years, you know, coming out of college. It was a huge mistake. And, and I kind of got super intrigued by that, right? And what she meant by that is um, that she would, uh, if she didn't get a personal best time every year, right? For her, the runs that she was doing, if it wasn't a personal best time, it became a bad year for running, right? And we know that's not sustainable, right? You get older physically, the demands of the profession take off, the demands of personal life take off with children and everything else. But she was living her life against that, right? She was getting up earlier in the morning to stretch more, to do yoga, to do weight training, you know, all with this idea that I'm not going to go lightly, right? I'm going to get that you know, personal best time. And what she realized is that all that time, you know, cumulatively, it snuck up on her, but all that time was taking her away from time with family, time with, you know, friends that she wanted to cultivate, extended family, things like that. And so she pivoted and said, what I really want to be doing is running with, you know, my daughter, her best friend and a parent. And they started running and it evolved into this group of parents and children that would run together. And she said, I've never been happier. Right. And the principle behind that, you know, in the book, there's a chapter that talks about kind of these sources of purpose in our life, not as a product of the work, but as a product of the relationships that we have around us professionally and personally. The principle behind that, what I saw with the happier people is, you know, what she did was take an activity she was already doing, which was running, right, and not pursue it in isolation or you know, by other people's standards, but pursue it with a slight pivot in a way that pulled her into two groups where the authentic connections really mattered, right? It pulled her into family and it pulled her into community. And I find, you know, I've done hundreds of workshops on this stuff now. Everybody can do that, right? It's not asking you to go sail the ocean, right? It's asking you to say, how do you just take pivots on how you're running this project at work, right? Or how you're managing your exercise routine or whatever it is, just slight pivots, that start to pull you into one of those groups and it has a, you know, has a material impact. So to me, I think that's, if I had one thing I would say, whether you're doing all that together or not, it's do things like that, that get you into at least two and usually three groups. It just creates perspective. It takes less pressure, you know, off the, the, the spousal relationship in different ways too. So Rob, um, imagine that I'm a leader that you're advising um, on the show right now. And I've got an issue here. I, I, this is all resonating amazingly with me, but you know, it's also feeling overwhelming because there are so many things that we're talking about right now. And I can see, um, how a lot, of, a lot of the things you've said resonate with the reality of my existing life. 
you've got a number of resources here. You've got the, the app, which is brilliant. You've also got a, uh, a micro stress diagnostic that you can download and we'll put links in the show note guide for, for both of these things. What, what can I do with those things right now to help me kind of raise my awareness and then get into some form of action around it? What would you advise me to do? I would first start with the diagnostic, right? And, and that's a very simple table that you're going through and you're answering those three questions, right? That I'd, I'd mentioned before. It shows the micro stresses down the side, the common sources of these micro stresses, boss, loved ones, teammates, colleagues across the top. And give it five minutes, right? That's all, literally five minutes. And just say, where are, you know, some of these stresses systemic enough in my life that I should be doing something about it? right? In the first pass through it and put an X in those cells, not all of them. You know, some people I see, they will have 10 X's before I can finish (laughs) my statement. Just pick three, right? Because if it's everything, it's nothing. Again, you're right back to that. It's a sea of stuff. Just get stuff you can get traction on and say, you know, where are three, four, five of these impacting me systemic enough? I should do something about it. Where are three or four of these that I'm unnecessarily causing that's coming back at me in ways I hadn't thought about and where two or three of these that I should rise above, right? That gives you immediate uh, traction on things. Then what I would suggest is don't pick the biggest micro stress first to deal with. Pick the easiest one and go out to the app and then pull that card down and, and look at the video and look at the tool and do something about it, right? And then put yourself on maybe a timeline of not just trying to solve this all at once, but say, let's take, you know, one this week and then another one the next week. And then maybe by week three or four, pick the the hairier ones, you know, because you've gotten more confident in in dealing with it. Um, And I find that everybody has those ops. I mean, everybody does, you know, what you're really, what we're struggling with is it does feel like that C, right. And you can use the tools to kind of get down to small things, but that have a big impact because of that three to five times ratio. You know, you remove those, you alter them. It has a significant impact on us. And once I've done it for me, how, how would you suggest I might do that with my team? I would um, definitely be doing some, well, in, there's a couple of ways, really. You know, one would be thinking about it in terms of one-on-ones, you know, and just making it a fabric of how uh, people are managing one-on-ones. Um, what I'm hoping to see more of, and we're building tools and resources for this now as we've run some of these experiments, is this kind of, you know, either six or 12-week journey that teams commit to, you know, where they, uh, Monday morning, they pick a micro stress. You as a team leader, you pair two people in the team, get those people to be kind of accountable with each other. They write each other. Friday, they write what worked. Midpoint, you all talk about it, you know, three weeks in or six weeks in. Um, there's a pretty specific process that we're learning uh, a lot about. And that's what I would love to see people doing more of. Because this is a, you know, everybody always wants, whenever I do these books, like the last one, this one, whatever, they're always like, what's the one thing? If I just did this one thing, you know, and you probably are thinking already, I'm going to end this podcast going, what's the one bit of advice <laughs> that you have for people? And it, it, if I did, it would be be intentional, right? You know what I mean? Be be intentional on it. But the reality is it's it's a sea of this stuff and you get down to things that are that you can do and take action on, you know, and the it starts to build a momentum. It starts to become a habit. Um, nothing in life is a one-time fix, right? This is more about how do you create a habit of seeing where this is happening and then shaping it, leaning into connections that are more meaningful, uh, I believe, over time. Promise you we, we won't ask you the, the one thing question. 
No, don't do it. Yeah, it's too nuanced. <laughs> it's too it nuanced yeah. for that. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> Rob, can you tell us about the consortium you're part of, Connected Commons? I really enjoyed the piece um, of research you and your team did on physical well-being not being a solo sport. Can you talk to us about the power of networks at work and 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 you know what what's the consortium unearthed? Yeah, so it's um, it's a group that that I work uh, connected commons. It's a part of this broader group that I'm a part of called Institute for Corporate Productivity, um, and it is a way basically what our mission is in this work. You know, I4CP is uh, historically the leading community out there of HR practitioners looking at human capital uh, as a way of solving leadership problems, change problems, culture problems, things like that. And what I'm introducing into that is this relational lens, right? And the ability to see how connections have impact, right? On different forms of things, whether it's around individual effectiveness, well-being, you know, team performance, uh, diversity, equity, inclusion efforts, talent optimization, onboarding. There's a lot of different ways that we're kind of doing that. But at the heart of it, it's, it's uh, focused, we're focused very heavily on once you make these connections that matter transparent, and, and you're specific, and here's the nature of the interactions. It gives leaders a chance to, uh, to be able to take action that cultivates those connections, you know, in a very different way. And so that's at the heart of it, what we're doing. And we've been at it for 20, uh, 26 years now, actually, um, doing different kind of pieces of understanding what, what matters with that network lens. And you put a great emphasis on prioritizing physical wellness in network groups. Um, I'd love to hear about your personal go-to rituals, practices, movements, you know, what's keeping you well and, and who are you doing it with? So for me, um, it became very clear that, and it happened with the very first interview I was doing in this. So it actually had a pretty profound impact with me. I was talking with a uh, life science executive in London and I said, just tell me about a time you were becoming more physically healthy. And she she just kind of laughed for a second and said, well, I was the person that dodged gym in high school with every chance, you know, I could. And, uh, and she said that worked for me up until my late thirties, early forties. And my doctor gave me a stern warning and said, if you don't do something about it, you're going to be in trouble. And so her solution was she started walking around a park outside of London, her flat in London. And then she bumped into people that were walking at the same time and they did a charity walk and a charity run. And he flashed forward 10 years to when I was talking to her. And she was doing um, uh, vacations with this group and her significant other where they would run marathons first and then, you know, go on the vacation. So uh, it was a fantastic story, right, of transformation physically in this person's life. And she was saying the identity of being a runner was really critical to me in managing work-life balance, right? Suddenly that mattered more than the last five emails, right, that really could wait till tomorrow. But if you don't have something pulling you you tend to, to just keep, you know, focused on work in different ways. But she said the real key to it, and this is what stuck with me, was that she was um, suddenly spending time with a diverse array of people that created dimensionality in her life. So she wasn't hanging out with just life science executives. There was a, a male person, an auto mechanic, a cardiologist, a, you know, software executive in this group. And she saw them at their worst. They saw her at her worst. There were deep friendships that were formed, but it created perspective on what true challenges were in her life, right? It wasn't just seen through her narrow lens in different ways. And so that, for me, you know, in terms of my rituals, that's pervaded in a big way. You know, I'm, I'm very focused for me on tennis. I have three different groups I play into 
uh, one group that's older, one group that's my age, one group that's younger that I call the kids. And unfortunately, the kids are mid-40s, which bums me out. <laughs> but uh, I'm very intentional about that. I'm super intentional about a cycling group that I ride with. You know what I mean? And again, because the, the trick for me was I wanted there to be the activity, but I'm actually quite an introvert. It's easy for me to pull away and go biking by myself. And I wanted that activity put into a set of relationships that kind of created that dimensionality, created the friendships, created the pull that keeps us going. So it's not, it's not like Weight Watchers has historically been about creating social pressure to show up and get on the scale, right? It's about how do you put that activity in a diverse group that then become friends, right? And doing things that cultivate that, that was what I saw created the, the long-term pull, the things that kind of kept people healthier over time. So what's next for you, Rob? Uh, next book is around teams and looking at teams uh, very differently today. You know, we're, we're conventionally still using ideas from Katzenbach and Smith, you know, that we're very heavily around vision, mission, purpose, and alignment and getting everybody on the same page. And what we're seeing is that's very difficult in most contemporary organizations today. The teams have grown too large. The people are on too many of them, typically five, six collaborative efforts. Uh, people are coming in and out of teams too quickly, right, for the some of those ideas. So we've been able to use our analytics to see kind of internally how the more successful groups are collaborating, quality, the connections they're forming, uh, and externally. And so we're, you know, really focused on what's driving team performance and success as well as when the teams falter, um, what kinds of patterns are they drifting into that, that people need to avoid. So that's, uh, that's next on the, on the horizon. <laughs> we'll get that done quickly, please. Cause I want to read it. <laughs> How can people get in touch with you? Uh, if they, I'm sure we have listeners going, man, I want to, I want to workshop on this. Yeah. I want to do this. Oh yeah. Too. I would love doing that right now. It's super meaningful. So from, uh, it's, uh, rcross at babson.edu is an email. And then my website obviously is robcross.org is a great place to go out. There's a ton of resources that we put out there uh, in different ways for people to, uh, to dig into. Excellent. Well, we'll put those in the show notes. So Rob, thank you so much. As always, it's an absolute joy um, to talk to you. Your research is tackling the issues that our audience really care about, the really big challenges, the realities facing leaders today and their teams. So we really appreciate you, your work, and the generosity that you give away so much um, in, in, in all of that work. So thank you so much. Yeah, thank you all for, for uh, talking with me. I appreciate it. <laughs> Folks, order your copy of Micro Stress today. And until next time, remember the world is evolving. Are you good?